The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. We're beginning to understand something bigger's going on. This is the great Tory immigration lie. Even the Labour Party are going to have to start talking tougher on immigration, however much a lot of their metropolitan supporters don't like it. A certain Remainer element in the civil service has got anybody Brexity in their sights. All the while we're part of the European Court of Human Rights, with its increasingly activist judges, we will never, ever grip this issue. One. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. Me, Liam Halligan. Is the UK's cost of living crisis finally over? Not on the basis of the latest figures from the Office of National Statistics. Yes, headline inflation is down from 10.1% in March to 8.7% last month, as measured by the Consumer Price Index. That's the first time inflation's been in single digits since last August. But dig into the data and the picture changes. Food price inflation was 19.1%, a basket of food costing a fifth more last month than in April 2022. And those price rises have persisted, Alison, despite wholesale food prices falling sharply over recent months across the world. With the battle against inflation still raging, will this ongoing cost of living crisis scupper any hopes that the Tories could recover? Or is the now not-so-natural party of government killing those re-election hopes itself, given massive government borrowing that came to light this week and a tax burden already at a 70-year high set to go higher still? And that's before bombshell immigration numbers are published on Thursday, the day Planet Normal's released. And on top of that, of course, while Home Secretary Swella Braverman seems to have survived her latest scrap with officialdom, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson is for the high jump once again. What do you make of it all, Alison? On this form, while Keir Starmer's no Tony Blair, some now predict the Tories are heading for a 1997-style landslide defeat. Well, co-pilot, you know I've thought Tories are going to hemorrhage seats, including safe seats, but at least the charge from the Liberal Democrats has been temporarily halted with Sir Ed Davey telling LBC that women quite clearly can have a penis. Very glad to get that cleared up there. That's a few thousand women lost to the Liberal Democrats. You know what I've been thinking mainly this week, Liam? Are we a redeemably trivial society? We had our Prime Minister go to Japan. There was this very important G7 meeting. Pops up sort of our media representatives at the press conference, not asking about sort of bilateral agreements and advances in defence. The CPTPP, Prime Minister. The CCPTPP, PPTP. Not not TCP, that's what you put in your cuts. Or at least we did in the 70s. People used to gargle with TCP. What was all that about? My God. Let's just call it the TCP because I don't know what it is. But so there they all were. Robert Peston, your old mate. What does the Prime Minister think about the dreadful fact of Suella Braverman not being sacked over some speeding points or, God forbid, asking a civil servant if she could do her speeding course online rather than in person? 
what is wrong with us? It's just embarrassing. I mean, it's just constant petty vindictiveness, Liam. I absolutely hate it. It's just really mortifying that our country has this media class, which is basically out to get anyone on the right. And it leads to these really international embarrassments. And Rishi Sunak quite rightly batted that away quite crossly. Took his time. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what I meant was he batted away the sort of pest and nonsense, but we seem mired in inanity and things of really zero importance compared to all the things you've just outlined at the top. Never mind that sort of, you know, our borrowing last month was, you know, 25 billion or whatever it is. Did somebody say something about speeding points? I just think that I know we're in the media, at least notionally, <laughs> on the gorilla wing. We're sort of around the media, aren't we? <laughs> There's a sort of VIP rope outside and we sort of turn up and they say, (laughs) not tonight, son. I think I probably quoted one of my favourite George Orwell quotes to you, that the journalist should always be a gorilla on the flank of the regular army, never marching in lockstep. And I often think about that when we're doing our see excluded awkward squad. I think Orwell would approve of us. But no, I just think it's trivialising. And of course, there's patterns you alluded to, Boris now in the sort of lockdown Olympics justifications in brigade. They've managed to dig up something else, haven't they, in one of his diaries, you know, have the fa- have the family over during lockdown. Ironically, only because the Cabinet Office were given access to all his diaries by him, yes. because the Cabinet Office, as the people being effectively potentially prosecuted because the state's picking up his legal pills. He's kind of done himself in. He has. Because as a multi-millionaire, he wouldn't pay a couple of hundred grand in legal fees and he put that onto the state. (laughs) The cabinet officer's all bitten him back. Hoist by his own large petard. But yes, the guy lost his job as Prime Minister. The Privileges Committee was supposed to be reporting this week on whether he misled Parliament. It looked very much as if Boris was going to get away with a 10-day suspension so he wouldn't face a recall by-election in Uxbridge. Now, I kind of think, look, I don't hold any great brief for the party gate behaviour. We all know how what we think about it. That should never have been illegal in the first place. So I don't particularly judgmental about it. It was absolute idiocy to indulge or to turn a blind eye to such behaviour when millions of people weren't allowed to see their spouses in care homes and so on. But nevertheless, there is a strain of vindictiveness against him now, it seems, and it's particularly targeted at Brexit supporters. It looks very much like, doesn't it, that a certain Remainer element in the civil service has got anybody Brexity in their sights. I think there is some truth in that. Just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you, as it were. But look, all this madness is happening at a time when macroeconomics really is coming to the fore of people's minds. This 8.7% headline inflation number that was released on Wednesday, that wasn't a bad number, but the food price inflation number is just eye-popping, still 19.1%. Jeremy Hunt had his little group hug with the retail food bosses in the Treasury, a sort of preemptive bit of spin on Tuesday. But when that inflation number actually came out, he did issue a clip. He did say on camera, if there is wrongdoing, then we need to root it out. Mm. The notion that really big food retailers, 19.1% food price inflation, when the Food and Agricultural Organization, a UN body, shows wholesale food prices around the world, Alison, over the last year, have come down 
by 19%. Mm. And ours are going up by 19%. You can explain food price inflation to some degree by labor costs, energy costs, lags, the cost of fertilizer this time last year, and so on. But the idea that they should be 19.1%, it just strikes me as mad. And I think there are weird things going on here and the government should be trying very hard. And it's interesting that the CMA was actually involved in that meeting on Tuesday, the Competition and Markets Authority. But it's all a vicious circle, isn't it? Because workers are still going to be feeling poorer because food price inflation is so bad and then that fuels wage increased demand and strikes. And I did notice that, you know, our old misery guts at the IMF now conceding that the UK is likely to avoid a recession this year, upgrading its growth forecast to 0.4%. Previously, as we said, that they were always giving unbelievably Eeyore-ish forecasts for the UK because they said our economy would shrink by 0.3%. But then up pops Hugh Pill, our new unfavourite person, the chief economist at the Bank of England, admitting that forecasts for inflation had been too low. Should have listened to the co-pilot, Hugh. And even Governor Andrew Bailey said, I think there are some very big lessons in how we operate monetary policy. He's only paid half a million quid a year, isn't he? How can he be expected to get things right? They are in apologia mode. I think the Bank of England is now in its biggest crisis since it was made independent. There are people talking about the Bank of England being completely reformed. Look, the problem with the Bank of England isn't that it's independent. It's that it's not independent enough. Mm. The people appointed to the Monetary Policy Committee, as I've often said, have been treasury creatures. They haven't been interesting, left-field academics, intellectuals who can sustain an argument from outside the consensus with authority, verve and skill. That's how you test conventional wisdoms. The conventional wisdom throughout 2020 and 2021 was was that people like me who were warning about inflation were, quotes, mad and beyond the pale. Those words were used against people like myself, against distinguished economists like Julian Jessup and others who were warning about inflation. And it strikes me that the International Monetary Fund, IMF, should stand for insightful my foot. I just made that up. (laughs) Very good. Not bad. That's why I guess I get the big bucks. Not. Because (laughs) the IMF just six months ago was saying that the UK economy was going to contract by 0.6%. Last week they were saying it was going to contract by 0.3%. And now, of course, the IMF is saying that the UK economy is actually going to grow by 0.4%. So we are no longer forecast to have the slowest growth in the G7 because it's Germany at minus 0.1%. Funnily enough, I didn't see a massive article about that on the BBC website or among the mainstream broadcasters. No, because it's Brexit, Liam, even though Germany technically hasn't left the European Union. (laughs) And also has very high food price inflation, higher on some definitions than UK food price inflation by the way. But look, these inflation numbers are a blow. You've got this core inflation measure. Sorry to wang on about definition. No, I was going to ask you about core inflation. Core inflation is a sort of underlying measure of inflation when you take out the really variable stuff like food and energy. It's basically measures what are called second round effects, the extent to which price rises are passed on, the extent to which wage rises feed into the supply chain and therefore into price rises. And core inflation went up between March and April from 62 to 6.8%. 
the highest since 1992. And that is why, get this, Alison, that is why just a week ago, financial markets were judging that interest rates would peak where they currently are, Mm. 4.5%, maybe a little bit more, maybe one final rate rise when the MPC meets on June the 22nd. Now, not 4.5%, financial markets are pricing in interest rates going to 5.5% or even more simply on that core inflation number. That's happened today, Wednesday, when we're recording Planet Normal. And here's another thought. Interest rates on money markets are now approaching where they were during that trust quoting mini budget. Yes. But rather than the sort of pro-growth policies that we would have got under trust and quoting, we've now got the sky-high borrowing costs along with the high tax, slow growth, corporation tax up, massive tax threshold freezes of Hunt and Sunak. We've kind of ended up with the worst of both worlds. So I know that the government had promised to bring down the national debt, but the figure that jumped out at me was that public sector borrowing rose last month to $25.6 billion. That's even worse than the finances at Pearson Towers. And that was up from $13.7 billion the year before. I mean, what are we spending this money on? We're spending this money on public sector pay rises, on benefit up rating, and we're also in a kind of circle of doom spending the money on debt interest. Now, debt interest in April alone, we won't pay it all in April or even in the coming year, but it is added to the national debt, was £9.8 billion. The debt bill on the government's stash of liabilities in a single year was £9.8 billion. How much is that? That's enough to cut the basic rate of income tax by 2p in the pound for a year, or in old money, it's enough to build 20 hospitals. The debt bill for one month. Again, I stress for technical reasons, we won't pay all of that $9.8 billion in debt interest in a single month, but it is added to the stock of national debt. So when people say to ministers, oh, you're so horrible, why don't you just borrow money and spend it? The only reason you don't want to spend money is because you're evil. The real reason is because when you spend loads of money that you have to borrow, then you end up paying massive amounts of money to service that debt. And guess what? As of today, with guilt yields spiralling, the 10-year guilt yield has gone up above 5%. The government's now going to have to pay a lot more debt interest. And that is dead money. That's money raised from taxpayers, firms and households that is just paying investors, often investors overseas, to keep the UK afloat. Something that Fraser Nelson, our colleague, and the obviously the editor of the Spectator, has been writing extremely powerfully about is these huge numbers, about five million people of working age who are not in work. And I just found this figure a few days ago, Liam, that the welfare bill now is £77.5 billion. I mean, these are stupefying sums, aren't they? And I mean, we can't really be taxed anymore, can we, to get out of this vicious circle? There's been a huge structural change since COVID. So, Before, or I should say since lockdown, because it was our response to COVID that's caused the problems, I would say, not the ghastly virus itself, though it was, of course, a terrible thing. So prior to lockdown, the British state generally spent around 39 or 40 percent of GDP each year, and we were taxed commensurately. 
during that fateful year of 2020, UK government spending went up because of furlough, because of the C-bill loans, the business support loans, because the economy collapsed, tax revenues collapsed. The UK government spent 53% of GDP. Now, did we go back to 39, 40% of GDP after lockdown ended? No, we're now about 44, 45, even 46% of GDP. And if you look at the five-year trajectory for government spending, that's where it stays. So we've had a five percentage point structural uptick in the extent to which the state is involved in the economy. And that's partly reflected in what Fraser's been saying about the number of people who are economically inactive and claiming benefits, long-term sick, and so on. But it's also that we seem to have got into a mindset where the answer to all problems is to spend more money. You know, oh, a car maker saying, oh, we might go somewhere else. Here's half a billion quid. No problem. We can just print the money. We can just borrow the money off financial markets. We've got now a generation of a political media class who don't really understand the importance of managing the public finances in a responsible way. And our national debt, which was about 600 billion quid when David Cameron took over in 2010, is now 2.5 trillion. It's gone up fourfold in little more than a decade. That is what future historians will scratch their head at when they look back at this period in British history, including the role of lockdown in bolstering that soaring government debt and moving us on to a trajectory where we have kind of French levels of government spending, where we haven't got French levels of sort of cultural ability to absorb really, really high taxation. Before we move on to the topic du jour, which is going to be the net immigration numbers, do you think it should be retrospectively, that BBC Verify will be retrospectively raking through all their appalling mistakes, Liam? But This makes my heart sink. I'm somebody who I really want the BBC to succeed. I think a lot of what the BBC does and stands for remains good. It's a very, very important and precious, I would say, cultural institution. You and I have had problems over the years with BBC News for obvious reasons. But at a time when the BBC has got so many things so wrong, because in its news department, it just lacks, it has, you know, massive gender and ethnic diversity, rightly so, but the cognitive diversity is almost non-existent. You have to be a certain type of person, whatever gender or colour or race you are, you have to have certain approved views or either you're not going to get hired or you're not going to get anywhere. That's just the way it is. And I'm speaking from real experience here. (laughs) And so just at a time when the BBC is so out of touch with so many ordinary people, they try and impose their own view of where the Overton window should be on a whole range of highly contentious subjects. That isn't how to build trust. You build trust by allowing a thousand flowers to bloom and within the law and within the realms of decency and respectability, allow a range of people to speak their minds, obviously in a moderated and responsible way. And I stress again, within the law. And yet this arrogance of verify only we can say what's true and what isn't true and basically they're saying only we can say what's acceptable and what's not acceptable on a whole range of subjects not just covid related but related to global warming climate change related to the economy we now have the guilt markets saying they don't like what's going on now 
I mean, are we going to reassess what happened under Truss and Kwateng? Are we going to reassess what was actually going on in financial markets then? Or is BBC Verify going to tell us that they were right then and that they're right now? Things change and opinions shift in light of evidence. And often they shift in ways which are very, very uncomfortable for consensualists and those defending the status quo. And that's why for a really important cultural icon like the BBC to try and control so explicitly whether Overton Window is allowed to be of debate, they're on a hiding to nothing. Well, as we know, Liam, something that BBC has done its absolute best to ignore is immigration. I think a couple of years ago, Nick Robinson actually did a programme, a documentary on immigration. And that was really almost the first time when the BBC would even concede that there might be even, you know, any mild problem with it. But there's going to be no ignoring it from today, is there? When we'll be seeing the release today, obviously we're recording the day before, but we know that tomorrow the net immigration figures will be released. And the previous number was bad enough. That was to June 2022. And that was 504,000. That was hugely almost double what it had been at its height under Tony Blair. Now that is not far off the population of Manchester, Liam. Let's think about all the houses and schools and GPs and hospitals that are needed for the population of manager. So we are not entirely clear at the time of recording what this figure is going to be, but various respectable groups are putting it at over 700,000. And make no mistake, this is catastrophic blood-curdling news for the Conservatives who, in four successive general election manifestos, have promised to bring down overall numbers. And of course, let's not forget that Brexit supporters voted to bring the numbers down to stop communities changing too fast and to take back control in the famous mantra. And this last week, you'll probably have seen Copilot, there have been some quite ambitious attempts at pre-excuses. So we had Grant Shapps on the Sky News saying he was proud of the Tory immigration record because Grant says we can now control who comes into the country. Of course, we can control who comes in, but ministers and civil servants have chosen not to control. So I don't know, what do you think? I mean, they are trying to throw a few sops to the electorate, but whichever way it comes out, it's it's going to be a bad day for the government, isn't it? I think today's numbers are obviously difficult for the government. There are many reasons why we can look back on British history and point to the huge benefits of immigration, cultural, economic, and so on. But I do think now there's an overwhelming sense across the country that the pace of immigration is now to the detriment, particularly of the communities who receive most of those immigrants, and they tend to be lower-income communities who overwhelmingly depend on the state for education, for healthcare, and in some cases for housing and so on. And I think at a time when the Conservatives are trying to rebuild their electoral popularity, they do really have to grasp this issue. I talk as somebody from an immigrant community myself, of course, and I think that is why, above all, Rishi Sunak could not afford to sack Suala Braveman. And that is why I think in the run-up to the election, even the Labour Party are going to have to start talking tougher on immigration however much a lot of their metropolitan, urban, graduate class supporters don't like it. 
I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, mine. I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street. Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Now on that note, our latest Planet Normal guest has boarded the rocket before. Nigel Farage led UKIP to victory in the 2014 European elections, of course. Then the first time a national vote had been won by a party other than the Tories or Labour since 1906. Five years later, he led the Brexit party to victory in the 2019 European elections, sparking the resignation of Theresa May, so handing the keys to number 10 to one Boris Johnson, who, to some extent, got Brexit done. Now presenting his own show four nights a week on GB News, Farage has stepped back from frontline politics. But in light of various forms of Tory meltdown and spiralling immigration numbers, there's widespread speculation he's set for a comeback. Nigel, thanks a lot for joining us here on Planet Normal. Pleased to be here. Great podcast. Love it. (laughs) Nigel, obviously these immigration numbers are far, far higher than they were before that fabled June 2016 vote. Why has that happened? Uh, Because the government had absolutely no intention of carrying out the wishes of the people. Do you know, in that campaign itself, the Vote Leave crew didn't even want to discuss immigration. And I had a number of conversations, well, arguments really with them. I said, look, if you want to win this, this is the key issue. This is the issue that will get people voting who don't normally vote. So you're talking Dominic Cummings, Matthew Elliott, the people running the all, campaign all, all from your them. side of the, the argument. Boris Johnson, Daniel Hannan, all of them. It was all too difficult, too awkward, too embarrassing. But towards the end of the campaign, they went for it. They went for it on Turkey, potentially joining. And they went for an Australian-style point system. In the end, they went for it. They did it with a total lack of sincerity. In the 2019 general election, Boris Johnson campaigned on a manifesto that said that they would reduce overall numbers. Extraordinary revelations by Nick Timothy uh, this morning, saying that Johnson told his own ministers, we put it in the manifesto, but please don't campaign on it, because I don't believe in it. You're talking about Theresa May's right-hand man, as it were, Nick Timothy. Yeah, but basically saying Johnson was insincere. So what they con themselves, ah, yes, but if we got that control, that's all that matters to people. No, it doesn't. What actually matters to people is sheer numbers and what's happening in their community. And they've got away with it, just as they've got away with the small boats thing. You know, every couple of years a new big, we're going to solve everything. And everyone says, oh, thank God, call blimey governor, isn't that great? You know, the mail, right, glowing headlines, all's going to be well. And the public want to believe them and believe that Labour would be worse. I think these numbers today blow that out of the water. They are of a magnitude. They represent social demographic change. They begin to allow the public to make the connection as to why they can't get their kids into the school they wanted, why they can't get a GP appointment. I was talking about this stuff 10 years ago. 
I think the penny drops. And here's the most important thing. Not only is it a breach of trust to make promises in 2010, 2015, 2017, 2019, but we're beginning to understand something bigger is going on. This is the great Tory immigration lie. Lie to the electorate each time round without ever having the intention of fully delivering, but rely on the next time round you make the same promise, you're believed, and Labour could be worse. I don't think now that the idea that Labour could be worse cuts any mustard at all. It doesn't matter. If you're concerned about this issue, you cannot trust the Tories. And I mean this ever again. Couldn't you say that this year is exceptional? We've had those people coming in from Ukraine, which very few British people would object to, at least would voice those objections. We've had a lot of people coming in, Hong Kong Chinese, who I'm sure you would agree, at least some of them deserve to be British citizens, given what's happened. We've got a situation where small boats has absolutely escalated, and yet the government is at least trying to do something on small boats. Is it? Do you think that I mean, are you absolutely sure that this is deliberate? There's no intention at all that they want to solve this problem. Doesn't every Conservative cabinet minister, even those more on the left of the party, instinctively know they need to do something to maintain the UK's traditional tolerance that we've had towards... Well, I'll tell you about tolerance, all right? From Windrush to the late 1990s, I'm talking half a century. Yeah. All right? Net migration into the United Kingdom through the entirety of that period of time averaged about 30,000 a year. And of course, the actual demographic makeup of Britain was bigger than that net 30,000 a year. But they're the numbers you're dealing with. In comes Tony Blair. Changes the whole game completely. Turns us around, opens the doors. Then in 2004, we admit eight former communist countries with literally no limits whatsoever. That was Blair and Brown's move, yeah, though, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it took me a... Oh, yes, but of course, all supported by the Conservatives. Yeah. They didn't vote against it, didn't really raise any objection to it. But here's my point. In 2010, the Tories inherit this position, and far from being better, it's worse. You may say Ukraine's a one-off. You may say Hong Kong's a one-off. I tell you what's not a one-off. I tell you what's really not a one-off. The fact that this Australian-style point system where we cut the number of unskilled people, now lets people in at or below the minimum wage and lets them in in huge numbers. Oh, and guess what's happened to productivity during this period of time? Our productivity has fallen below that of France. I mean, I can't believe it. So even the idea there are some economic benefits to this, I think is very, very open to challenge. And I I tell you what is directly in their court, the way they treat foreign students. Uh, The idea that foreign students have brought with them 135,000 dependents in the last year is just literally beyond belief. Who was it that allowed foreign students to stay and work for two years after their degrees? Boris Johnson. And once they've been working for two years, they're not going anywhere. Do you know what is amazing? But of this figure, this massive figure, only 20% are genuine work permits. Economically, this is of no benefit to the country at all. Propping up GDP, but not increasing GDP per capita, does not make economic sense. Socially, it is destructive, because if you fill large communities with people from inheritances that have absolutely nothing in common with our culture, our history, that leads to division, 
And in terms, and this is the big one, this is the one that I think could lead to a political backlash, an insurgency such as we saw with UKIP, but this time it could be even bigger. I think if the public start to connect failing public services with lax, uncontrolled mass immigration, then I think the conditions are there for really big change in British politics. The Conservatives have been deeply dishonest, but of course, you know, they go out to dinner with the giant multinationals who want an endless supply of cheap labour and couldn't give a damn about the economic consequences for the country. And so there are shortages. They're things we can make good. It'll take a little bit of time. It's very interesting. The disconnect between Westminster, and I'm not just talking about politicians, I'm talking about mainstream media, so-called conservative commentators, and the country is absolutely huge. How would you characterise the UK's attitude towards immigration over your lifetime? I've always sensed, after the real difficulties of the 70s and 80s as as an Irish person, Mm. I've always sensed there's a lot of tolerance, there's an inherent tolerance towards people from different communities, particularly among so-called working-class Brits. Is your concern the pace as opposed to the concept of immigration? No. I mean, look, I think, you know, when it comes to tolerance... I mean, this is the European country that had more interaction mm. with Africa, America, you know. I mean, yeah. For and in s- countless polls, yeah. we rate higher in terms of tolerance. Of course. Than Germany, certainly Italy, course, Greece, Spain and France. Higher than Sweden course, and Norway on some surveys. So, so, yeah, we have had interaction all over the world in a way that other European countries have not. And there is a degree of tolerance. And there is an acceptance of some form of diversity. But what has happened, Liam, in many British cities isn't diversity. It's a complete takeover of different cultures. And that's the reality. And you know that. And I know that. And we all know that. And yet you're not supposed to say it. It's almost as if those that relentlessly pursue diversity actually are so filled with self-loathing for this country, all that it's ever represented, its values. It's almost as if they want to willfully destroy it. And, and, And those people have been around for a very, very long time. The problem is they now have shifted the centre of gravity of this debate so far to the left that anybody that speaks out against it receives massive amounts of abuse for saying things that would have been quite mainstream just 25 years ago. Specifically on small boats, Mm. Rishi Sunak, he's making noises that he wants to properly address this issue, saying something he would never have said a couple of years ago as a mainstream Conservative that maybe the UK that has to leave the European Convention <laughs> on human rights. How's this going to pan out? Let's just remind ourselves, just every year ago, Boris Johnson went to Ned Airport in Kent, unveiled the Rwanda plan, said if you come here illegally, you won't be allowed to stay. And prior to that, Mrs May said if you come here illegally, you won't be allowed to stay. And I can show you a video clip of David Cameron saying, if you come here illegally, you won't be allowed to stay. What is bizarre is that under David Blunkett's time as Home Secretary, we deported many thousands every year of people who came here illegally under the last 13 years of Conservative government, we now deport virtually no one. So why are the Tories wielding that argument? Why aren't they throwing that back in Labour's face at the dispatch box? Well, I think Labour have the upper hand on this. And actually, Labour do have the upper hand on this. If you compare the Labour government and the way that it dealt with illegal immigration compared to this, they do actually, in some ways, have the upper hand. All right, Annalise Dodds, you know, has said that numbers may go up. But listening to Starmer this week, I mean, it's almost as if You've got a Labour leader whose feigned sincerity at bringing numbers down could just be more believable. Mm. At the next general election, 
than the Conservatives. And that's the very odd upside-down place that we're in. Look, Cameron made the tens of thousands pledge, but actually everybody in number 10 knew it wasn't achievable as members of the EU. Mm. The modern-day parallel, back to your question, is Rishi Sunak can say whatever he says, but they all know the reality is all the while we're part of a European Court of Human Rights with its increasingly activist judges, we will never, ever grip this issue. And Sunak and the others have no intention of leaving ECHR. It'll take another Brexit-style referendum, I think, to get us to that position. So Braverman has no future in the party? Well, look, I think I mean, she's different to all the rest of them. All the rest of them, like Boris, none of them have meant it. Her problem, and the reason she can't stay, is because she actually believes in it. And that really won't do. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's not going to survive, I don't think. I rather like her. Had I been a Conservative Member of Parliament, I would have voted for her in the leadership debate. She represents a view that you will find in many of the ethnic minorities who are here, they've come legally, they they've settled. The they've waited ages for relatives yeah. to turn up legally. Oh, oh, and nowadays to come and get yeah. citizenships are quite an expensive mm. burdens, as it should be in many ways. The people who really are behind this agenda, the people who cry foul and shout racist and try and close people down on social media, they're nearly all white and nearly all privately educated. I mean, it really is most peculiar, but I've seen that again and again and again. So what's your plan, your personal plan, to the extent that you're willing um, to disclose well, it? So a lot of people are wondering what oh, you personally are going to do. I know, I know they are. Look, you know, we'd never have got the Brexit result if it wasn't for the idea that we took back control of our borders properly, that we put a skills-based Australian-style point system in place rather than saying, if you're on minimum wage, come on down. I think the Tories have failed on Brexit completely. I think they failed on immigration and illegal on business. I'm just in despair. I see the British authorities, in some cases, making businesses life worse than it was as EU members. Almost perverse pleasure they're taking in doing these things. It's all well and good to argue that constitutionally we've left. Well, I'm delighted about that. But that doesn't bother any part Temperamentally, we haven't left as far as the oh, ruling class is concerned. No, and, the, and, and because we haven't um, moved away from EU regulation, it makes it very easy for a majority Starmer government to put us back in alignment with single market rules. That would be the first step, I think. So I'm very, very upset at this. I did Boris Johnson a lot of good in 2019. When I got rid of Mrs May, mm. they didn't have the balls to do it. I got rid of Mrs May with a Brexit party. Boom, she was gone. Boris was in. And when the general election came, you know, I took the view, well, he may not be the most trustworthy figure you've ever met in your but life. you stood down some candidates, didn't you? All hundreds, yeah. yeah. Well, effectively stood the campaign down. Yeah. I had two choices, Liam. I could have gone around the country saying this deal was blooming awful and probably allowed a lot of Lib Dems to win seats from southwest Surrey right through to Land's End, and I think that's what, that's what would have happened. So I decided politically it was time to cash the chips in, and they should have been very grateful for that in many ways. Where we go from here, I just don't know. If I was to come back into the front line of this, which, you know, would be pretty full on, would millions of people vote for me? Yes. But what would it achieve? I don't know the answer to that yet. You're certainly not ruling it out. You just introduced the idea of you coming back to the front line. I didn't even have to ask. Well, no, it's been, well, it's been fairly widely discussed, you know. Have you got it in you? 
It's not top of my bucket list. Okay, but you could do it health-wise, temperamentally. Yeah, I mean, I'm older than yeah. I was. No, I mean, I may not be uh, meeting the British Medical Association's alcohol targets, but yeah. it's certainly less than it was. No, I could physically do it. But I see yeah. you day to day. You're sort of extremely energetic. Yeah, no, no, you you buzz around the newsroom. You're constantly talking to people. Yeah. Look, you know, if you throw yourself into a battle where you take on the entirety of the establishment, and that's what it is, you know, they do not exactly come out, you know, with tea and cucumber sandwiches. I mean, it is a very rough place to be. I withstood it. I withstood the hatred that was poured upon me, and it really was, for all those years. And the milkshakes. Because there was, oh, well. Which could have been acid. Well, I, I, oh, I, I, outrageous. You know, yeah. Outrageous. All of that, you know. But I withstood all of that because there was a goal. Mm. And the goal was getting back the independence of this country. Mm the ability to manage our own country, or as it's turned out, to mismanage our own country. With this, it's much harder. Isn't uh, your goal now to stop a Prime Minister Starmer from reversing Brexit? Yes, maybe, but it's... And he won't reverse Brexit. He's not stupid. He doesn't want that fight. Uh, and, and there are millions of Labour... Back in the single reasons. market? Oh, yes, that's easy. That's easy, because the Tories haven't taken well, us away Well, that's a reversal. Then you've lost control of your laws, borders... I know. And trade. I know, but I don't, I don't see at the moment how I can stop it, even rallying millions of people. You know, in 2015, Cameron had that majority. We had the referendum because of the UKIP vote. Fleet Street didn't understand it, but where we made a difference was in the Labour seats. The Tories won probably 30 seats in that election. They wouldn't have won without the UKIP vote. We were hitting the old working-class Labour vote hard. If I was to do this again, whilst I would take votes away from Starmer disproportionately, I would take away more of the 2019 Conservative vote. If I did it, Labour would probably get a bigger majority, which would make it even easier to rejoin the single market. Now, I do think the Conservatives deserve to be punished, but I've got to work out, Liam, you can do things in life, but what's the goal? I haven't worked that out yet. Nigel Farrell, thanks a lot for joining us here on Planet Normal. Thank you. Well, typically... A great interview there, Liam, with your GB News colleague. I agree with pretty much everything Nigel says. I think these recklessly liberal immigration numbers are of a magnitude now that the public will click that they are affecting the pressure on public services. We are talking about more than two Southamptons coming into the country one Manchester, two Southamptons, and as Nigel pointed out, 135,000 dependents on this student university's racket as highlighted on Planet Normal last week by Jilly's very touching email about her son with impeccable grades for computer science, unable to get a place because they're all being given to Chinese and Indian students who pay more. I think, Liam, this marks an identity crisis for the Conservatives. I think we're quite clearly seeing a split now between the Jeremy Hunt, Grant Shapps, possibly Sunak side of things who see things purely through an economic lens and certainly the more Brexit red wall leaning MPs who have a much keener appreciation of what it means to ordinary people. Just to mention, I've interviewed the excellent Tory MP Miriam Cates. I went up to Sheffield at the weekend to meet Miriam in her home. She's the MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge. And Miriam, who is now part of this interesting new pressure group called the New Conservatives, this is a sort of Brexit red wall group of Conservatives. And Miriam was very outspoken about these immigration figures, Liam. Rightly, she said people will be angry, incredibly upset, 
So there are people in Whitehall in the Treasury, there's this focus on the economy as if it's this kind of abstract thing that people are here to serve than the other way round. And she was very, very critical, saying, talking about the Treasury, looking completely coldly from the point of view of figures. But people aren't like that, Miriam Kate says. People value the immeasurable things about life. Does this feel like my community? Do we have a shared story? Do we have a shared history? Is this where I belong? So I think the battle lines are being drawn now. And if the Conservatives lose badly at the next election, that's the way they're going to split. The real message from that interview for me, Alison, was that Nigel Farage is grappling with what to do because he needs to work out, if he does come back, why he's coming back. Because it's very different to 2019. In 2019, what he did is he delivered a lot of seats to the Tories in order, quotes, to get Brexit done by standing down a lot of his troops in that European election, ousting May. But if he re-enters the fray now, he's right, he will get four, five, six million votes. I mean, ask John Curtis, ask any open-minded sophologist and they'll tell you. He definitely has that base across the country what will he end up doing? He'll end up taking votes away from the Tories and delivering Labour a bigger majority, a Labour party, which if it is suitably emboldened, and in particular if it's working in cahoots with the Lib Dems, who will make reversing Brexit one of their conditions for coalition, by the way, Mm. then will undo a lot of his life's work. So the natural disruptor in him, the mischief maker in him, the political contrarian in him, he's desperate to run. He loves it. Mm. (laughs) It's what he's born to do. But the tactician in him, the strategist in him, is wondering if it would be, in some senses, an indulgence too far, even for him, because he would actually end up undoing a lot of the work that he spent his political career getting done. And one final thing, Alison... Nigel Farage is increasingly interested in proportional representation and Richard Tice is sort of right-hand man in the Reform Party, the leader of the Reform Party, of which Nigel is chairman, by the way. They are increasingly talking about the need for proportional representation. And it'll be really interesting if there's a coalition of political interests from the Lib Dems on one side right through to the Faragists on the other who push in the years to come for proportional representation. That would represent an earthquake in British politics every bit as big as Brexit itself. Now it's time for our listener emails, the messages you send to me and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. .uk. Please keep them coming. Female listeners, please write in because we're getting an awful lot from the chaps. You know how much we love reading your thoughts. And of course, we follow up stories that you've sent us because they're fantastic. Now, we had a lot of response, Liam, to that piece by Rishi Sunak in the Telegraph yesterday. The headline was Controlled Legal Migration is Fairer and Better for Everyone. And Sarah says... Your government can control legal immigration, Prime Minister, but you have chosen to increase it against your manifesto. Have you just woken up? No, you've taken us for complete fools. What a disgrace. 
Michelle says, strange how the feeding frenzy starts on Boris just before the immigration figures are released. Rishi Sunak slithering again. We see you. And John says, is it April the 1st? Clearly, immigration is totally and utterly out of control. Sunak has the power to change it overnight. He won't. He cannot be trusted. I will never vote Conservative again, not even holding my nose. Let Labour in and let them finish the job. At least that creates space for a right-wing party to emerge. And it will if immigration keeps going on in these numbers. Our children cannot get homes, capital letters. Our children cannot get places at university. Our wages are being driven down by cheap labour. Stop it. This is from Malcolm. Respect to the hooligan, I guess that's me, and his economic <laughs> supergroupie, I guess that's you, Vilma. <laughs> a voice of sanity in this absurd world in which we're living. One of the most bizarre appointments is that of a diversity officer by the Royal Horticultural Society for the Chelsea Flower Show. <laughs> now, is this to make sure that all the punters are from all walks of life, or is it to ensure that the shrinking violet's happy to be mates with sweet William? Question <laughs> mark. We're living in a bloated society, increasingly dependent and reliant on benefits. We're a country of work-shy scroungers. And the structures of our society are undermined by a so-called woke elite in the Davos fraternity. In all other walks of life, a cartel's illegal. Clearly, this rule doesn't apply to those who have our, or is it their, best interests at heart. This attitude permeates through all walks of life and is most prevalent in our civil service, says Malcolm, which is out of control. It's absurd Dominic Raab was forced out because he was the boss and told some timid little civil servants to get on with their jobs. Liz Truss, as we know, was hung out to dry by the Treasury and the Davos gang. The policy was spot on, but the timing and the politics were ill-conceived and she gave them an open goal. It seems to me the only two people that give us hope in public life are Lord Frost and Suella Braverman, providing the traffic police don't cancel her. Our institutions are broken. The police are bent or stupid and possibly both, says Malcolm. The media class, with one or two obvious exceptions, weak, not fit for purpose. The NHS is self-serving. Having said all of that, I do love our country and look to the likes of you guys to keep on rattling the cage. Keep up the great work and I will find solace in the railway tavern. Best wishes, Malcolm. That's one of our locals, by the way, isn't it, Alison? Yeah, the Railway Tavern is where the great hooligans, uh, the Halligan family band play. So uh, absolutely wonderful. Went to a, a gig there recently. I've had a lot of response, Liam, from people about universities, both about the international students taking places from British students, but also about the general collapse in support for students. I know you've had a child at university. I certainly have. His education has been a joke, really. Strikes, strikes, COVID, COVID, strikes, strikes. And now some universities are not even going to be marking dissertations or finals just to put the icing on the cake. Absolutely disgraceful. This is from Isabel. An overseas friend of my daughter received an offer from St. Andrews within a week of applying. She was asked for three Bs. Another non-overseas friend of my daughter's wanting the same course from the same school doing the same A-levels received an offer after six months but needed AAA. Meanwhile, my other daughter, who is in her final year at Newcastle, has had one lecture since Christmas and now staff are on exam strike. The whole system is a racket. And Lucy, not her real name, says... My son is coming to the end of four years studying languages at Edinburgh, four years disrupted by COVID and strikes. Yesterday, he was meant to be doing his final orals, the climax of four years of studying a language. He was told beforehand it might not be going ahead. It would all depend on the whim of the lecturers and whether two of them bothered to turn up or not. They didn't. 
How cruel, playing with the young, not saying whether or not it would go ahead, making them turn up, prepare, get nervous, and then not being there to examine them. So, four years for what? How will they be marked? How will it be fair? How on earth can anybody say it is value for money? Yours sincerely, Lucy, I am furious. Me too, Lucy. Just unbelievable. Why are these people working at universities if they end up messing with young minds like that? It's absolutely disgraceful. Well, you'd think after the pandemic, they might think they've been upset enough as it is. And actually, I think we'll have to follow this story. We might try and get a student on. Some students at UCL in London are now taking legal action to recover their fees. Personally, I think my son should only be charged for distance learning because for two years, there wasn't anything to go into. Not any activities, not any lectures, nothing. This is from Michael. It was wonderful to hear Liam's passionate words, thank you, Michael, decrying how destructive it is for people to have to pay such high rates of tax. That said, he referred to this in context of frozen allowances and of individuals working hard who will be dragged into paying 40 and 45% tax rates, including those who struggle for a particular year only to see a large chunk of income lost to the state. It would be nice to think everybody paying high rates of tax might be so well regarded rather than being branded as bad people who are there to be milked. There are two problems which lead to these high taxes, too much government spending and a lack of growth. On the spending, it's particularly galling, says Michael, for all those paying taxes to see such poor service with areas such as the sainted NHS sucking up endless resources without showing signs of improvement and simply demanding ever more money. How many decades of poor NHS performance will it take for us to abandon this proven failure of a healthcare model when so many countries around the world show us another way? Or take our bloated welfare state. I think virtually all of us buy into the idea of a safety net provision, but the idea that 40% of households higher on some measures require support is crazy. As for growth, well, the Liz Trust experience showed that if you have a growth agenda, then the political and civil service blob will scream and undermine you until you're gone, even though the Blob Bank of England was responsible for the excessive money printing and inadequate attention to pension funds that caused the financial crisis that did her in. On the positive... We still have some great journalists and we thank you for your work. Well, thank you too, Michael, for your email. That's a great email. This is from Tom. I have listened since episode one and I want to thank you both for your courage and resilience over the last few years. During lockdown, I look forward to Thursdays and my trip on the rocket as an oasis of common sense and critical thinking whilst the world succumbed to mass formation psychosis. I'd be interested in your thoughts on the newly launched, here we go, Liam, BBC Verify. For me, the BBC is irreparably broken and its complicity and bias during the pandemic, don't even get me started on Brexit, means I'm unlikely to ever change this view. This new department, clearly inspired by the partisan and easily discredited full fact et al., is a curious innovation as the BBC claims to be the arbiter of truth, it tells us so often. To quote Queen Gertrude, methinks the lady does protest too much. For me, and I'd be interested in Liam's view of this financial analogy, BBC Verify will provide AAA ratings to its own cherry-picked information, but will exist in the same feedback loop that incentivise credit rating agencies to rubber-stamp securitised junk before the GFC. And who is this Ministry of Truth aimed at? Surely people who still possess the ability to think for themselves and have an open mind to a wide variety of information taken from multiple sources will not be swayed by this attempt to underwrite their truth. Keep up the good work, says Tom. GFC, of course, is the global financial crisis. 
And I do think there's a, you know, the credit rating agencies were massively financially incentivized before the global financial crisis to stamp these junk derivatives as AAA secure investments. And of course, when a news organization is marking its own homework, there will be the same suspicions, at least, that similar incentive structures will apply. Again, I think this is a blind alley for the BBC. I don't think anything good can come of this. No. And I think it's ill-judged. And I say that with regret. And finally, from Dan, there have been some almighty howlers like the systematic fraud on the COVID bounce-back loan scheme, but the eight-fold increase in the dependence of students since 2019 is surely one of the biggest oh-my-God moments in 13 years of Conservative government. It surely is, Dan. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. It's my turn this week, and I'm going to give the email of the week to Michael. So, yes. Michael, send us your postal address in an email, subject heading mug winner to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, and you'll get your revered Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please go and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There was a very, very nice review this week, although Anne, who described Planet Normal as strangely uplifting, said she was a big fan of Liam, mild-mannered but forthright. Mild-mannered. <laughs> he and Alison sound very natural together. Well... That's a matter of opinion. Anyway, yes, please leave us a rating because it doesn't half cheer us up and we need cheering up with these god-awful times. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the matters of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitz, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe, in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>